Hello everyone, I am David Tamez and this is Lawrence Talks, a community podcast dedicated to introducing traditional philosophical and humanist topics to exploring the ethical issues that arise from local events. On this episode, I speak with the researchers of a recent report produced by Justice Matters. Joining me are Daniel S. Rudes of Daniel S. Rudes Consulting and Dr. Shannon Portillo of the University of Kansas. Our topics today include how the research was conducted, the solutions it recommends, and the next steps. Our podcast is produced thanks in part to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. everyone. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks. As always, I am your host, David Tamez. And on our show today, we continue our conversation with Justice Matters regarding the issue of jail expansion. In anticipation of their report, which is slated to come out soon, if it hasn't already, we have with us researchers directly involved. We have Dr. Danielle S. Rudes of Danielle S. Rudes Consulting, and we have Shannon Portillo of uh, University of Kansas. Thank you all for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. And b- before we get into the report, could you all, I guess, for our listeners, discuss a little bit about who you are and how you came to take on this project? Sure. I'm Danielle Rudes, and I'm a professor of criminology, law, and society at George Mason University. I also run my own consulting company to do work like this on the side when an issue comes up that I think I can lend some value to. The work that I've done over the last 20 years has mostly been in the realm of corrections. So, I've done research in prisons, jails, all types of community corrections, probation, parole, problem-solving courts, including things like drug courts and re-entry courts. Dr. Shannon Portillo and I are good friends. She actually used to work at George Mason with me, and now she's back in her beloved home of Kansas. And she called me, and we talked a little bit about what was going on in Douglas County, particularly in Lawrence, with your jail expansion, and got me in touch with Ben. I thought that I could do some service to the community where my dear friend lives and now where I'm concerned about the growth of your custodial facilities and what that could do to your community, not only for financial reasons, but for the good of the community itself. These are things that are near and dear to my heart, and I'm I'm really happy to be a part of the project. And as Danielle mentioned, I'm Shannon Portillo. I'm on the faculty in the School of Public Affairs and Administration here at KU Prior to that, my first job out of graduate school was at George Mason University in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society with Danielle. Most of my research tends to look at how policies are enforced both formally and informally in public organizations. So a lot of that has happened in criminal justice organizations. Like Danielle, I've done some work in problem-solving courts, drug courts, and then also community corrections. But then a lot of my work also focuses on local government management and the military. So I'm very fortunate to have really smart friends. And when Ben reached out about potentially doing a study here in Douglas County, I thought it would be really good to have someone from outside our community who could bring a really objective lens to this and someone who has a lot of expertise. So we're really fortunate to bring in Danielle and some of our current graduate students to do this work with us. 
Great. Thank you. Before we get into the details of the report, can you provide a, a kind of a, a summary of what is in it and the sort of things or the methods that you use in putting your data together? Sure, I can do that. I'll try, I'll try to be short. I tend to be long-winded. I get excited about these projects and I tend to talk a long time. So the project sort of evolved from just talking to Ben about what was needed in the community and it's sort of couched in the available data, what we can get information on. The main question was really whether or not Douglas County was doing what was in the best interest of its citizens by expanding the jail. So starting with that question, I thought about what are some alternatives? And as a criminologist, it's sort of a known fact to criminologists, I think around the world, that carceral environments like prisons and jails don't really serve anyone. They're very costly in terms of finances and human resources. They also don't usually produce the outcomes that we're looking for from a custodial facility. So if you think about it in terms of what the goals of a facility like that might be, they include things like incapacitation, you know, the removal of someone from society, rehabilitation to make them better when they leave than they were when they went in, deterrence, which is to deter either that person or the general population from committing crimes or deviant acts, and then retribution, the sort of eye for an eye, the moral value of putting someone in, in a facility like that. And the, the research that we have to date largely suggests that none of those things really work very well as punishment goals for carceral facilities like jails and prisons. The only effect that we get that has any sort of credence is an incapacitation effect, and it's very small and it's very short term. Basically, when you remove someone, so you know David commits a crime in Lawrence and we put him in jail for a week. Well, it's true that David didn't commit any more crimes during the week that he went to jail. But if nothing happens in jail that makes David a better person, no rehabilitation, when he's released, there's a really good chance he's just going to do it again. So you got a small week-long sort of reprieve from David's criminal activity, but it didn't really give you any long-term sustainable consequences of the action. So if that's the only sort of outcome that you're getting from these facilities, you're not getting rehabilitation in most cases, especially not from jails when the period of stay is so small. Not a lot of programs can work their magic in just a couple of days or just a couple of weeks, which is the traditional length of stay for folks in jails. If you're not getting an incapacitation effect that really matters, you're not getting a rehabilitation effect, you're not getting much of a deterrent effect because there's really no evidence to suggest that jails or prisons are have a large individual or group community-wise deterrent effect and the retributive effect is marginal at best, then we have to ask ourselves what it is that we're doing with these facilities. So criminologists largely say that there's no real magic cure for crime, right? Putting someone in custody isn't going to be the cure to all of those ills. But there are some things that we can do that will significantly improve community safety and will significantly lower the financial and the other burdens that communities face when people are committing crimes in a community and none of those involve jail. Offering community supervision or community services, treatment programs, graduated programs, programs that match their specific needs with the specific program goals, ones that have evidence, strong scientific evidence behind them. Those are ways that we can make a real difference in how many people are revolving through that door that we call the revolving door in and out of the justice system. And they can make a real difference in how communities look on paper and when you're walking around, you can feel safer in your communities when you're actually doing good work to help people figure out what their needs are and then solve those needs. Criminologists think they're generally best solved in the community. And so the impetus for the report is really that, thinking about 
why would Douglas County think that it needs a bigger jail when in fact the national jail population has been decreasing for some years? Why wouldn't they look for alternatives to incarceration that are much more cost effective in terms of finances, but that also have much better results? And so we started thinking about this study to figure out, does Douglas County even have the resources that it needs to be able to fill that gap between what offenders need and what services would be really helpful to fill those needs? And so the methods for the study are using available data in Douglas County. And then I also wanted to look at the seven counties that surround Douglas on the map, because in my experience, people don't just live in one county and commit crimes in that county. They sometimes commit a crime in Douglas County, but they might live in Leavenworth County, for example, or they might commit a crime in Leavenworth County, but need services out of Douglas County. So I wanted to see more broadly. The report primarily focuses on Douglas, but we did do our due diligence to make sure that the seven counties were similar in their availability of services. We created a spreadsheet and combed the internet for every possible program or service that we could find. We grouped them into a variety of categories, and the two main categories are programs and services that are in the county that directly serve the needs of people who've been involved in the justice system. So, for example, they might say on their website that they serve people who just got out of jail, right? That the services set up for those folks. But we also looked for other programs and services that people who had been involved in the justice system might use. For example, a homeless shelter probably doesn't put on its website that it's looking for the formerly incarcerated as their primary clients, but certainly formerly incarcerated individuals will use that service. And so we created two different tabs on our spreadsheet, one for programs and services that are directly linking themselves to reentry and ones that are sort of peripherally associated with reentry, but don't necessarily only go after that population. Then we did a really thorough analysis of the literature. So the scientific scholarship that's been developed so far using a, a national website called crimesolutions.gov. And we can talk more about that later, but it's basically a ranking of programs and research to try to figure out which programs and services that we have in custody and which ones we have in the community for people who are justice involved, who have substance or opioid use disorders, who have mental health issues, other things like that, which of those services has evidence backed behind it. So we can say this either works, it's leaning toward working, we don't have enough evidence yet, but it looks like it's producing good outcomes, or in fact, it doesn't work. And it could be that it just doesn't work, nothing happened, or it could be that it's actually harmful to the person. So recidivism, if someone goes through X program, maybe they're more likely to recidivate than not. And then we did a really big gap analysis. So we looked at the Douglas County jail population based on what we could get from available data. We compared that against what we believed were their most primary needs for the population at large. And then we looked at the jail services that are currently provided and the community services in Douglas County and the seven surrounding counties to do what I call a gap analysis, where we're trying to figure out if the jail doesn't expand, does Douglas County currently have the programs and services that it would need to support that population? And in fact, we find overwhelmingly that it does. They're not all evidence-based, but frankly, there's not a lot of evidence-based in the world of corrections. It's kind of hard to study and even harder to get money to study. So there's not a lot, but there's a lot of promising programs, programs that are showing some sound results that haven't quite met that threshold of being evidence-based yet within Douglas County. In the jail, however, there aren't any programs that have an evidence base 
behind them. There are a few that are promising, but none of those in Douglas County Jail have been studied. So we don't actually know if they're producing the outcomes that we want. In addition to that, we do know that the average amount of time most people are spending in jail is far too little for any program to make a real difference. Even people with severe mental illness, according to a 2018 report that we found, are only spending on average 18 days. And that's just not anywhere near as much time as is needed to fix the problems that they're having. A community-based approach, like your new behavioral health campus, for example, is exactly what those folks need. And so some of the major recommendations of our report suggests that Douglas County should really take a look at the science behind their decision. They should think about the SCAP analysis and realize that they already have in place a good number of services that would immediately reduce their jail population if those people were funneled to services instead of custodial settings. And the long-term consequences of those actions would be definitely cost savings. And it would also be a long-term community safety issue because I believe firmly that you would see reductions in recidivism in your community that would make the community services much more reliable as an ongoing source of treatment for the folks that need it. Great. Thank you. And I guess one question we can start off with is you mentioned in part that your study looked at the available data. And you said that there's certain data that's, or you discussed what data isn't available. How does that limitation affect the conclusions that you draw at the end of the report? And could your conclusion only be strengthened whenever that data is made available? That's a tough question because Douglas County is not super forthcoming with, <laughs> with its data. So not only us, but a, another research group from the Vera Institute has had some challenges getting data from the Douglas County Correctional Facility. So I wouldn't say that I don't stand behind my report. The report is largely based in my 20 years as a criminologist and what I know about how jails work and what works best for folks or who are justice involved. I definitely think that that is a finding that I would definitely put my name on the line and sign for that one. The only thing I I guess challenges me a little is that the data is so, I don't want to say hidden because maybe that's too strong a statement, but it's, it's definitely not readily available. So up until 2016, so from 2007 to 2016, the Douglas County Jail has on its website an annual report. And these are pretty standard for jails around the U.S. In fact, when I was looking For the most recent reports, I couldn't find anything past 2016. And I emailed Shannon and said, you know, what happened to the rest of the years? Where how come they haven't been posting this report? And there's no real good answer. It just they just don't making it publicly available anymore. So then I thought, you know, hey, is this a thing? Maybe this is happening to other jails. And so I just picked 10 or 12 counties at random, just checked random websites in different states that are similarly situated to Douglas County to see if it's a thing, if jails just aren't producing these reports anymore. And I got 12 for 12. I didn't have any problem finding the report on any other jail's website except for Douglas County. Hmm. So up until 2016, Douglas County produced this report. It's a very simple, there's not much analysis. It's really just very descriptive statistics of who's in, how many people, how much money they spend, how many staff they have, those sort of things. But it's a really useful report for being able to take a look at the population in a jail over a given year. And then when you compare it against other years, they do some of this in the report, but you can see with the trends in the data. From 2016 on, though, the Douglas County Jail didn't produce this report, so I had to get creative. I had to find other organizations who have done studies with the Douglas County Jail, I guess with permission, who have better data. So in our report, you'll see cited a mental health study. There was a a study of mental health in Douglas County, and that study has really good data on the population from 2018. 
So I'm able to pull that data out. The same data I would have gotten from the Douglas County report, I just got it from an outside source who also got it from Douglas County. So it's sort of like friend of a friend told me, right? But it's a reliable source. It's a published report published by academics who worked in conjunction with Douglas County to produce the report. I did the same thing using newspaper articles or other reports. There's a few other reports that have been done over the years by various scholars that have used Douglas County's jail to piece together what the jail population currently looks like. The community population is much easier. Most of your community data is publicly available. It's pretty easy to find. You can look through different news outlets, but you can also get it in a variety of different places. You can go to the census and get data on how many people live there. You can use the uniform crime reports to get basic data on crime statistics in a particular area. So that data is all pretty sound. The only sort of piecing together that we had to do was on the Douglas County jail data. And I feel very confident that we pieced together a reasonable picture. I would feel more confident if we had the collaboration of the Douglas County Jail and we were able to look at their most recent annual report, because then I would know for sure if there was a change in the trend. But from my evaluation of Douglas County compared against other counties, the trend line looks very similar. So I wouldn't say that unless something crazy happened in the Douglas County facility that hasn't been in the newspaper and that Douglas County is somehow hiding, which I doubt, I feel pretty confident that what we got is a fairly good picture of the jail population. So we can compare that against the community statistics that we were able to get much more easily. Okay, great. Thank you. Why hasn't the county been all that cooperative or because it seems like it is in their interest to improve the situation with their jails and yeah, to basically improve that area of uh, the county. So why the lack of collaboration there? I think that that's a really difficult question to answer. I know that the CJCC, the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, was meant to really be a space to do a lot of this work. And we had originally, when we first started kind of collaborating to think about this project, we had reached out to the CJCC and had even proposed a project that would potentially go through them. The CJCC decided that they didn't want to fund this and that they weren't really interested in doing collaborative work with academics. So. We can't speak for the county as to why they wouldn't want to collaborate on something like this, but I don't think that it's unique to us that they haven't wanted to get more information before moving forward with the jail expansion. Okay. Yeah, no, understood. It's That's sort of an interesting dynamic that, that's been, or reluctance to collaborate on something that seems to be in everyone's interest there. One other question that I guess we can focus on or address is how is it determined and this is just a sort of methodology, maybe question of how conclusions are drawn here. Because you mentioned in the very start of the report that jails produce, I guess, these negative effects on justice-involved persons. How is that determined? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. So there's a variety of scholars who have been looking for many, many years at the criminogenic effect of locking someone in a custodial facility. So because there are more people in prison and they are in prison longer, some a lot of the research focuses on prison, but they draw their conclusions around custody in general. So there's a, any number of studies I can think of. I wrote down a few just so I could cite them if people wanted to see, but there's a sort of famous piece by a man named Ted Jerkos in 2007 it's in Florida. He looks at offenders over two years, and it's 95,000 offenders in his sample. He basically finds that the prison sentence that they received for the sample of 95,000 offenders had no effect on their likelihood of recidivism. There's a whole bunch of other ones. There's some in juvenile settings. So there's a Rochester Youth Survey, which came out, and there's a series of papers and reports spanning about a 10-year period 
And that's actually combined with a few other research studies that look specifically at the criminal labeling. What happens when you put someone in custody isn't just that you lock them up, but you label them as a convict or an offender or whatever word it is that folks use to label these individuals. And that label is forever. You can't shed that label. Once you've been in custody, you have that label and it creates a whole host of problems going forward. And so in these studies, there was a, a randomized controlled trial sort of overview study, almost like a systematic review by the Campbell Collaboration. There's the Rochester Youth Studies. There's a few other ones that looked at massive amounts of data. So thousands and thousands of kids and found that the label itself actually follows them into adulthood and is really detrimental to their ability to stay out of criminal involvement. And then there's a, just a whole series more. I, I don't want to bore your readers by doing too many, but there's some in Canada that show that effect. They're all over the United States. There was one in Norway that shows that effect. These are all pretty big studies with thousands of different participants, all showing either a criminogenic effect, suggesting that for some individuals, carceral conditions create a more heightened chance that they will be or remain criminally involved, or a null effect, which means that it isn't reducing their recidivism. In fact, there's no difference between whether or not they were incarcerated or not. Most of the studies, however, do show the opposite is true for community supervision. So if someone receives a community sentence as opposed to a carceral sentence, and you can match those groups and compare them, the folks in community supervision usually have a pretty significant recidivism reduction. One study reported 7% reduction in recidivism for community sanctions versus carceral. Another study looked at a meta-analysis, looked at 57 different studies. And overall, in those studies, found a 14% higher recidivism rate for folks who had received a carceral as opposed to a community sanction. So it's a pretty common fact in criminology that you're not going to get recidivism reduction out of putting someone in custody. And in fact, it has not only the effect on the individual, but it has a sort of ripple effect throughout their lives. So it affects their immediate family and friends. It also affects their broader community. And then the worst part, I think, at least for me as a mom, it affects their children, their children's children, their children's children's children. Kids who have parents who go to custodial facilities have usually around a 10 times higher chance of being justice involved themselves. And so putting one person in custody may just seem like, hey, you know, you know, Ben was a bad dude, so we locked him up. But it's the legacy of that action over many, many generations of Ben's family and his community that actually create an unsustainable amount of work that we're going to have to do to get back what we lost by incarcerating just that one person. Okay, so with that, and we'll continue this conversation, we'll take a brief break here. Okay, we're back with Danielle Rudes and Shannon Portillo. Researchers who have worked on recent reports in collaboration with Justice Matters regarding the issue of jail expansion. To begin our second part here, I wanted to expand on this issue that you, I think, sort of ended on and something that the report sort of introduces right off the bat, I think, is this sort of term, which might be new for some, but not new for others, as justice-involved persons. Why was that term created or what sort of motivations went into introducing this term? So there's a movement in criminology, sociology, and in communities. So community activist groups all around the country are trying to do some of what I was talking about before, sort of reduce the labeling. And so in past years, we've referred to people as convicts or ex-cons. We've called them offenders. In prisons and jails, we call them inmates or prisoners. And that label tends to be pretty demeaning. 
and creates not only a stigma for other people, but also for self-perception, calling yourself an inmate as opposed to a human, right? You're still a person. You're just an individual who happens to be incarcerated currently. So the real strongest push is actually to use what's called person-first language. It would be to put the human first and then the label second. So if I'm doing it correctly in my report, I actually would say individuals who are incarcerated or individuals who have been involved in the justice system. And I do really like that language. I love the notion of person-first language, but it's very difficult to write a report like that because it adds five or six extra words to every sentence and it's in the passive voice, which is not the best style of writing. So I move things around in this report to make it more accessible to a general reader. And I use the term justice-involved individuals or justice-involved persons throughout the report. In consultation with both Shannon and Sydney, we decided that this was the best course of action. It makes the report more readable, but it also gets away from those stigmas. So it basically says to folks, this individual is maybe currently justice-involved, but it isn't a label that they have to carry with them forever. Once they're no longer justice involved, they're no longer justice involved. They're just now individuals or people. I think it's an important distinction for folks to think about how damaging the label is. And so I wanted to make sure that our team put that in the report so that people could start to think about that language and what it means and how damning it can be to folks to have a label that they just can't shake and that they didn't give to themselves. Great. Thank you. And and another sort of discussion that you have or statement that you make in the report is this talk of certain demographics being underrepresented and others being overrepresented. Can you explain those distinctions or what that terminology captures? Yeah. So when we looked up the, so I did the jail statistics and then I compared them against the county level statistics to see if you have an adequate representation in your jail of who's in your community. You know, in a perfect world, you'd want to see very similar percentages in terms of race or gender incarcerated as you would like to see in your community. That's almost never the case. We have in the United States a dramatic overrepresentation of males in the justice system, particularly in carceral environments. I think the current numbers are something like 93% men and 7% women overall in the justice system. So you're not going to find a representation, an equal representation of men and women. In fact, in the report, we list out your county currently, according to the data that we have, is about 50% men and women, and your jail has 72% males. So you're a little more representative than maybe most, because most jails were looking at around the 93, 94% mark, but you're still dramatically overrepresented on men, which is pretty common. In terms of race and ethnicity, we did the same thing. We compared the jail statistics with the statistics in your county. And we find that there's a slight underrepresentation of white folk in the jail. So about 75% of your population is white. And in the county, it's about an 83% white population. We find 5% Black or African-American in the county, but 19% of your jail population is Black. So there's a pretty significant overrepresentation of Blacks in your jail. 3% Native Americans in your county, 5% in the jail, similar, but still overrepresented. And you have about 5% Asian population in your county and only about 1% of, of Asian inmates in your jail. So a slight underrepresentation in that race or ethnicity category. That's really all we were just trying to show was that the jail, how the jail's population makeup sort of looks. And then compared to national statistics, that's pretty similar across jails and prisons in the U.S., 
Most jails and prisons have a really dramatic overrepresentation of males and usually pretty significant overrepresentation of Black or African American. Is this intended to inform future policy decisions about the makeup of jails? In some ways, I think that this is intended to inform future policy decisions, but also kind of showing how our jail population, similar to other jail populations across the country, does show some really racialized differences. And this is something that's been a part of the conversation around criminal justice reform in Douglas County. There's currently an ongoing study around policing and community contact, particularly around, among racial and ethnic minority communities in our area. And so I think that this is just kind of situating our study along with national discussions around race and racism within criminal justice. And you briefly mentioned this and how generally, I guess just to bring this out a little bit more, does Douglas County Jail, first compared to other jails in, in Kansas and in the general area, and then how does it compare nationally in other ways? I know you just mentioned a, a number of ways, but are there other ways that it might be said to, how might it be compared to other these other jails? I think it's really similar. I didn't see anything in the Douglas County Jail that was dramatically different from other jails in Kansas. But to be fair, our report is only focused on the Douglas County Jail. So I did not do my due diligence on the jails in the other counties. I did look at the community services available in the other seven counties. But when I was just doing a quick perusal, I was trying to situate, because I'm not from Douglas County, I live in Virginia, I wanted to make sure that I understood, as much as Shannon understands living there, what the community looks like. I didn't want to come in as a total outsider and not have any clue what was going on. I've been to Lawrence a few times. I love your town. But I wanted to have a feel for, you know, is this jail somehow weird? Is there something different about it that makes it have to expand? I don't want to get ahead of myself and start to think, well, this county shouldn't expand because, you know, jails are, are not usually a good thing. I wanted to be sure that there wasn't something crazy going on in Douglas County that made it necessary for your jail to expand. So I did my homework. I looked at the seven counties around you. I looked at Kansas generally. And then I just looked at jails around the United States to see jails in counties that are similar to yours. So, you know, I'm not comparing you to something like Rikers Island, right? It's a completely different environment. But I was looking for small county jails, smaller, mid-sized county jails that look like yours. And you you sort of fit right in the trend line. I don't, there's nothing much different. You have about pretty average bed size for the size of your county. You've had some pretty dramatic increases in the number of people you've incarcerated over the last 12 years. But over the last four or five years, you've seen that sort of level off a little bit and be much more on trend with the United States. In fact, the United States saw a 12% reduction over the last 10 years in its jail population. And you look to be on target to have those similar numbers. The number of programs and services, the number of staff, from what I can tell from the available data, the number of violent incidents, the breakdown of the misdemeanants and the felons and the parole or probation revocations, other types of offenders in your jail look pretty much on trend with the rest of the United States and definitely with the rest of Kansas. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me that made somehow your community be so different that I had to approach the data in a different way. Got it. Thank you. And in terms of the voices in this debate, I don't, I don't know if you, you've been able to capture this much. Is there a debate about what the proper role of the jail is or should be? Is that the loudest voice in this conversation? Or what seems to be, not just in Douglas County, towards the Douglas County Jail, but generally from your experience and from your research, what tends to be the sort of turning point that 
prevents general reform from taking place? For me, the thing that's most interesting is that the research is solid, but for some reason, that research either isn't getting to the folks on the ground who are making these decisions, or they don't want to hear it for some reason. And that's pretty common in research in both sociology, which is my home discipline, and criminology, where I've spent the last 12, 15 years. I think people that work in the correctional industry often, like in your case, the sheriff's department, often see the jail or the purpose of custody with a very specific vantage point, right? They work inside of it. And so it's pretty difficult to be critical. And it's very difficult to use science to back your positions when you work inside of an industry. And and I don't mean to just point out corrections. I actually would say this about all industries, right? So the IT industry or hospital systems or educational systems, right? You don't really ask teachers to evaluate the entire school system or the entire educational apparatus in the United States. When you want to understand how something big like that is working, you get a scientist or a scholar or a researcher or someone outside who knows the theories, who knows the concepts, who can really analyze the data with an open, open-ish mind, because they do have a disciplinary specific mindset usually. But the goal is to think about what the data is telling you and then make decisions based on that science. It's very difficult for people working in an industry to see that clearly. And I I really hate that I say that out loud because I know people in the correctional industry will possibly think, I don't want to put words in their mouth, will possibly think, you know, who is this ivory tower woman who's deciding from Virginia that she's going to tell us what to do in our county? And by no means do I mean to say that. I, I just think that we should make decisions with all possible available information. And that information should come from a variety of sources, not just from internal to the sheriff's department or from an internal group in a county who is making decisions about expanding a jail, but they should look at other similar jail systems or other places who have expanded their jails and what has happened in those situations or other counties or jurisdictions where they could have expanded their jails but didn't and what happened in those situations and really think about the purpose of the jail. If the purpose of the jail is rehabilitation, there is zero chance that the jail is going to make any headway in that regard, with the average length of stay being as low as it is, depending on the inmate. The highest is for individuals with severe mental illness who have felony charges, and their average length of stay in your jail, according to 2018 statistics, is 45 days. But there's 27% of individuals who are housed within the Douglas County facility that only spend three hours there. You are not going to rehabilitate someone with mental health issues in 45 days. And you're not going to rehabilitate somebody who is in there for property crimes or for multiple DUIs or for substance abuse treatment in a week or two weeks or three weeks. It takes a really long time to make a change that big in somebody. And the jail is not the right environment to make it. The jail is set up and it's very, its foundation is custody, control, punishment. Rehabilitation is antithetical to that goal. 
So if you want to do rehabilitation, if someone is able to be rehabilitated, your best option is to keep them in the community, stretch that period of non-custodial supervision out over a number of months or years with a graduated program that deals with not just one need, but multiple needs. They may be homeless. They may be unemployed. They may owe back fines or child support. They may have legal troubles. They may also have a substance abuse issue. They may have a co-occurring mental health issue. These are not things that the jail should solve. And if they believe that they can, I think they should reassess that. I think they should look for community resources. Your county, for example, just put on its ballot and, and overwhelmingly approved, I think it's a 25 cent increase in your sales tax to fund a new behavioral health campus or center. And the goal of that is to really focus on the needs of people with mental health issues and severe mental illness. That is the best possible option for those folks. They can get long-term care. They can get long-term care from people who have the clinical training to be able to treat them. In my view, and I don't mean to put down the jailers or the people who work in corrections, but their job is simply not to do that. They are not trained. They do not have the educational or experiential level to be able to deal with someone with severe mental illness. And in, in my interviews with folks and other studies, I've, I've asked them and they feel completely overwhelmed with this role. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychologist. I am not a person who should be dealing with this level of stress. Their response is usually to put them in solitary confinement or restricted housing to further sort of try to control them, which most studies show only exacerbates their mental health symptoms. It also puts the jail and the other jail residents, so people who are living in the jail under custodial supervision at greater risk of physical violence, verbal violence. It puts everybody in there in a bad situation that the jail can't really work itself out of. I think we should look to the experts to take care of folks like that. The same is true for drug and alcohol treatment. The jail may have a drug and alcohol program like Alcoholics Anonymous, or they may have a short-term program where people can attend weekly classes. But if the person enters the jail with substance in their body, it might take upwards of three weeks for them to even detox before they could begin to do a substance abuse treatment program. And there's a really good chance based on the jail statistics that that person isn't even going to be housed there that long. So a community service program that looks at substance abuse treatment issues, including detoxification, would be a much better avenue. I think we've put too much pressure on the jails to be rehabilitative when in fact we should just use them for what they are, custodial temporary facilities for housing the folks that we don't want in our communities for whatever reason. But the people that we can keep in the community should definitely stay out there and go through programs and services that would help them. Great. In a little bit, I want to get to the sort of prescriptions and the recommendations you make at the end of the report. But one thing I, I also want to discuss in light of recent events is have you kept track of not just with Douglas County, but in general, the effect that the current pandemic has had on, on the jail population and generally on these efforts to either reform jail or to, has there been any reconsideration in your experience of that has been brought out by the pandemic? It's pretty early to tell, to be fair. A lot of jail systems didn't release inmates early enough. And so now COVID is running rampant through jails and prisons. You've seen all the headlines in various cities and towns all over the U.S. Basically now an incubator for the disease. They didn't take appropriate measures to handle it. And so now counties are releasing 
folks back out, but in fact, they could just be affecting communities because many of the folks who are being released may be asymptomatic or maybe being released with COVID-related symptoms back to their families to live with them, which just creates even more of a crisis, if, if you ask me. I think we have to wait. You know, I'm sorry that that's true, but researchers are not super quick when it comes to this stuff. They want data. I think the reduction of prison populations and jail populations has been substantial. So anywhere from a third to sometimes a half of inmate populations have been released early. I think it's a really telling statement that when there is a pandemic, these folks aren't considered risky or risky enough that we have to keep them in. But when there wasn't a pandemic, they were considered to be risky enough that we had to keep them in. I think that's a pretty interesting statement about maybe we're incarcerating too many people, folks that maybe are low to mid-level risk who may have been okay under community supervision. It'll take us a while. It'll take, I bet you it takes at least a couple of years before we start getting any real good recidivism numbers on these folks. And that will be the test. These folks were released early from prisons and jails due to COVID. Isolation is lifted, quarantining is lifted, and these folks are now able to move freely throughout communities. It would be really interesting to look at a matched sample of those folks against folks who were released, who look similar to them in, in all respects, sort of criminal history, race, gender, communities, those sort of factors, and see if the recidivism reduction is there. Do we see that these folks actually could have been released without increasing worry about community safety? I want to believe that that's going to happen, but I can't stake my claim on that yet because I haven't seen, I don't know what's going to happen. And we're in a weird spot because now we're still quarantining and isolating. So we've released them, but they may not have the same opportunities to participate in criminal activity that they had before. We kind of have to wait till we're free to move about and then give it a year or two and start to study that sample of folks that got released early and see if it made a difference. Great. And so one of the things you you mentioned, and another thing you mentioned in the report is that most of the jails that did undergo an expansion, they ended up having to expand again a few years later. One question that I had in mind of asking is, is it a matter of one or the other, one approach over over the other expanding and not necessarily attending to the programs, the community programs, or focusing primarily on developing these community programs. Is there room for both? Or do you think that that's expansion in general should not be explored? I think expansion in general should not be explored. There's no good evidence that expansion is the right way to go, not only because of the possible criminogenic effect, but the long-term consequences to individuals, communities, and families the people that should be in jail are only the very few individuals that we really feel are at such high risk that they cannot remain in the community for whatever reason. The rest of the folks that we are currently incarcerating, including people with mental health issues, uh, severe mental illness and otherwise, but also people with substance abuse disorders, definitely are not best served by jailing. So in the report, I bring up another report that I'm very familiar with. And I think this report is, it's almost like a Nostradamus-like effect on Kansas. It was written long before you were all thinking about jail expansion, but you're very much like other communities around the country who have struggled with this idea of, we need more beds, we're overcrowded, what should we do? And so the Vera Institute took up this issue a few years ago in a report by a scholar named May, M-A-I, and then her colleagues. And they really find that jails primarily warehouse inmates, which means they put them in 
they control them, they count them, they sort of supervise them, and they don't provide much else. In that environment, jail expansion is a recipe for disaster. Hmm. Basically, expansion is not a long-term answer. It's a short-term band-aid to a situation that you have, but it's not trying to figure out why you have the situation in the first place. So Douglas County makes a really big point in their jail expansion rhetoric about why it is that they feel like they need to expand. And they talk about the need to reduce overcrowding. They talk about the need to bring folks back from neighboring jails. So according to the most recent numbers, they're spending about a million dollars a year to farm people out to nearby counties. Hmm. Uh, And then they also talk about the need to increase security and safety within the jail facility. And uh, sorry, the fourth one is to develop a sustainable approach. All of those points are not answered by jail expansion, which is ironic since those are the four reasons they give for jail expansion. Expansion is just an answer to a short-term problem, right? We have overcrowding because perhaps we're putting too many people in. We have overcrowding because we haven't solved our revolving door problem. We're not rehabilitating any of these folks. And so they continue to have the same issues in the community. Maybe we aren't using our diversion programs enough. Maybe we're not relying heavily on probation as an alternative to incarceration. Maybe judges aren't thinking through risk-need assessment instruments when they're evaluating somebody's need to go into a carceral facility as well as they could. Not to say they don't, but maybe the system isn't set up for that. And so the jail is now faced with an overcrowded population, but you already have the answers to those problems in your community. You have this beautiful new behavioral health center or campus that will alleviate your need for incarcerating almost all of your mental health population, which which at most recent numbers is about 19% of the jail population is going in with a mental health flag or a mental illness. So immediately you just take 20%, let's say, we can even go lower if you want to be conservative, 15% off the top. Now, instead of going to jail, is going to your behavioral health campus for long-term and much needed services. So now the jail, and one of their primary goals for the jail is to do more advanced mental health treatment, isn't needed for mental health individuals. Only those who have committed severely violent or other crimes that may engender them to being sent to prison. So we got a 15% reduction just by relying on something that you're already building. Then you have a tremendous number of substance abuse treatment facilities in your community, including a bunch of medically assisted treatment like methadone maintenance clinics, all of which have some evidence, if not pretty good evidence to support that they do produce a reduction in recidivism for these folks. And if you're using them more, you can take another, let's be very conservative, 5% off the top of your population could be filtered into community services for medically assisted treatment for opioid use disorder or to other alcohol and drug treatment programs. So before you even start to think about jail expansion, you should think about reducing the number of people in there. And now you're already at a 20% reduction. In addition to that, if you fully used your diversion programs, if your judges thought a little bit differently about mental health or about the policies that they have for uh, sentencing someone to community supervision or house arrest, if your police not only receive the CIT training, which they are currently training in communication and de-escalation, but if they also received mental health training, if they worked in conjunction with other agencies to be able to divert folks away from custodial facilities, you could see anywhere from a 20 to let's say 30, 35% reduction. That immediately frees up all those extra bed spaces. You don't have to farm anybody out to your neighboring communities. And when you have fewer people in jail, 
you're able to have a much more secure and safe environment for the people that work within that environment and the people that have to live in that environment. And over time, you would expect that you'd develop even more programs and practices that would continue to reduce that jail population. Once you saw the benefits, you would be able to see lower recidivism numbers and you would know, oh my gosh, that was a really great decision that we made. And there's plenty of examples in that report. I won't go into them all, but in that report, the Vera Institute lists a bunch of counties who were faced with this exact same decision. Should we expand our jail? We're overcrowded. We don't have a safe environment. We have violence and misconducts. We're misclassifying our people because there isn't enough bed space. And they go through, I just wrote down a few of them just as a sample, but Miami-Dade County in Florida was able to not expand their jail and instead built a mental health project called the Criminal Mental Health Project. They did this in 2000. And over a nine-year period, they saw a 40% decline in their jail population. And I realized that Douglas County or Lawrence is not equivalent to Miami-Dade, Florida. But what I do see as equivalent is that they focused on the mental health population and they specifically addressed the mental health population's needs in their approach to non-jail reduction and saw a 40% decrease in their jail population over a nine-year period. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania did something similar, except that they worked in different ways. They didn't only look at mental health. They also expanded their diversion program. They eliminated most of their bail program and changed some of the bails to low bails as opposed to regular bails. They also decided to use civil, not criminal codes for their nonviolent offenders to funnel people away from the jail. And in just a short period, they were able to see another 40% reduction in their custodial population. There's one other county I'll mention. It's a, a county called Bernalillo County in New Mexico. I might be saying that wrong. Forgive me. They chose not to construct a new jail that was going to cost them about $44 million, which is similar in range to what your county is looking at. They began by decreasing their jail bookings. They increased their pretrial release. They also trained all of their judges to use an evidence-based risk assessment tool to find out who should actually be put in custody. They created a whole series of special dockets. They worked on increasing the time to trial. They actually saw a 23% reduction in their jail population in just one year and a 42% reduction in population in three years. So if I'm thinking about any possibility why you would need to expand your jail, I would ask the sheriff's office to look at these other counties and take a look at what that means for not only jail safety, but community safety and how these long-term decisions that they can make can create a much more sustainable and, and I think lovely Douglas County in helping people overcome some of what they have going on in their lives as opposed to locking them up for it. Right. I guess one thing that I'm curious about, and at least as, you know, I'm PhD candidate in philosophy. And so I'm asking, I'm curious about these questions about value, value judgments and normativity, and especially the relationship between these sorts of studies, between data and evidence-based initiatives and how they connect to particular prescriptions and things that we should be doing. And coming to your recommendations, what sort of values, uh, I guess, did you have in mind, or what sort of values do you think policymakers should have in mind in, in regarding criminal justice and maybe focus on this issue of reforming jails? My personal value is to think about the individuals who are just as involved as human beings. 
So I always sort of take that into any project that I do. And that is first and foremost to me, not treating them as if they're any different. I, I can imagine lots of different paths that my own life could have taken choices that I made as a young teenager that probably weren't the best choices to make and and how I just sort of stumbled into a life that doesn't involve crime. But I, I probably pretty easily could have made different choices. And for whatever reason, I didn't. There were resources available to me. There were people in my life, strong families, strong communities that kept me in line. And many of the folks in the criminal justice system today don't have those same things. And so when I use the word choice, I want to be very careful about it because many of the choices that I'm talking about are not, are not choices from a full menu, right? I get to choose from a full menu of choices that include a strong family, a strong community, a good education system. I'm white, so I come to it from a place of white privilege. There's lots of reasons why I am able to make choices off a different menu of choices than many of the folks involved. If I'm a policymaker, of course I want them to think that all these individuals are human, but I, if I'm a policymaker, and I'll let Shannon talk about this too, because this is exactly her area of expertise, I think I want to know that my community is going to be safe especially if I'm an elected official or if I'm in charge of keeping the community safe, I want that to be the first and foremost in my mind. Are my citizens safe? Is it safe to go to the store? Is it safe for me to take my kids out? Do do we have drug paraphernalia on our corners? Are people going to break into my house? Those sort of things. And the value that I put to that is I want what's best. I want what's known. And I want to do my due diligence in terms of research to know that I am making a decision that is backed by sound science. I don't want to make my decision based on my own limited vantage point as a correctional professional or as a citizen of a county. I want to look to the science. And I say this when I teach undergraduate classes. Sometimes they won't think beyond their own personal values, whatever they've been raised with, with their families, with their church groups, with their communities. And I ask them to just set aside the personal and the moral inside themselves for a second, whatever it is, and look at the science and then go back to those decisions that you think you've already made and say, can I still make that decision knowing that there is no scientific evidence that that's a good choice, that that's the best choice? Can I make a decision to incarcerate someone because it feels right to me, even when I know that the long-term consequences could actually be harming to not only that person, but to me? They could continue to commit crime. Wouldn't I be better served if I let them get the treatment that they needed in the community and then they weren't committing crimes, not only against me, but against other people? So the recommendations that we make in the report, we really tried to make them very policy relevant and very relevant to the sheriff's department and the community members in Douglas County and particularly in Lawrence. We asked them to reanalyze their population and think about their population trends and think about expansion. But the best one, I think, and the one that I am, I guess I'm sort of beating a dead horse now because I keep saying it over and over again, is we asked them to please rely on the science. The science does not support the decision to expand. It doesn't support it in terms of its financial burden that it will place, but it it definitely doesn't expand it in terms of community safety, which is one of their primary goals. We also ask them to pay attention to the community members who are the voters in Douglas County who have made a pretty loud noise, not just through Justice Matters, but the community in general about what's important to them. They didn't want the jail expansion. In fact, they wanted a behavioral health expansion, and they've approved a tax to be able to do that. 
that signals something really big and in my mind kind of beautiful that they understand that mental illness should not be equated with criminal activity in many regards that we should think about these folks as fully rehabilitatable with direct services with direct care possibly with medication with psychiatric treatment or clinical treatments and in terms of the bottom line we ask them to spend wisely 20 or 30 or 40 million dollar investment in building or expanding a jail is not going to yield the benefit that you want. It's just throwing money out the door when you already have those services available for you in your community. There are some needs, though, to be fair, that the jail believes that it needs some infrastructure costs. It's got some HVAC problems. It needs an expansion of its parking lot. There's some basic stuff that they cite that they need. I'm in no position to tell them that they don't need those expansions. I don't know anything about HVAC systems. And I probably think that they say they have HVAC problems. They probably need a new HVAC system. But I don't think adding more beds is the right answer for the jail. And I certainly don't think it's the right answer for the community. Shannon, I don't know if you wanted to speak to the, I guess, the policy connection there. And if you wanted to speak to the question of, of values and, and connecting the, the evidence to particular policy decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that Danielle stated it is exactly correct. There are no decisions where we can fully take our values out of it. But Lawrence really prides itself and Douglas County really prides itself on being a well-educated, progressive community. And part of that, in my mind, means that we should really evaluate the evidence when making decisions. And part of what Danielle and I are asking with this report is for us to take a look at the best academic evidence that's out there the best science that's out there to say, what does this mean for our community? And to have us really reflect on the values that our decisions convey. And part of this is saying, what are the short-term and long-term implications for our community? How do we use our resources within the community? And how do we go about making decisions as a community? As Danielle pointed out, we have voted on the issue of jail expansion just two years ago. And we suddenly said, no, our county commissioners have decided to move forward with a vote without getting the full evidence of what we really need to know when it comes to jail expansion. And I think that part of what our report highlights is that there are better ways for us to invest our public dollars. And our policymakers can only make the decisions with the information that we put in front of them. And we think it's important for them to have really robust science in front of them before they make decisions about expansion. One thing that I want to end our conversation on, is there anything that you weren't able to put in the report or that just didn't make it into the report that you think should be known generally or any final thoughts about the research that you conducted? I mean, I'll just say I think that the report is a really solid discussion of what we know from current research and what we can do with publicly available data in Douglas County. Danielle and I did propose a much larger, more robust study to the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council here in Douglas County. And I think that we can do more with more cooperation from local officials to say, what data do we have as a county in a community? And how do we really connect that with services? So I'm really proud of the report that we've put together. I think that there are always future steps to take and there's always more research to do. I think I would just add one final comment, something that I didn't put in the report and actually was a part of our full study that we had originally proposed to the council 
was the data from the jail. That would have been extremely helpful. One of the problems, I think, with that data, though, would have been some of the information that I wanted was risk-need assessment information. So I assumed, because most of the jails in my community use a risk-need assessment tool at intake, when an individual is brought into the facility, you know, they get fingerprinted, they get booked, those sort of things. And within, you know, a couple of days of being brought into the facility, they get an evidence-based tool delivered to them. And that tool is usually done verbally, asking them a series of questions that not only picks out their what's called static risk factors. So for example, their age, people are, are more at risk of committing crime in the high crime years. For men, it's about 16, sometimes between 16, 17, and then up to 24. So that would be a static risk factor. You, you can't change your age. And so that you just have that risk. But then it also assesses their needs. What sort of services might they need? In terms of like, are they homeless? Do they need mental health counseling? Do they have other substance abuse or other disorders? Do they have other needs that could be addressed? In most cases, not in the jail, but that information is then passed on to community corrections. For example, when someone leaves jail and they go on to probation services, the probation office in my jurisdiction has that information and they can follow up with the person about what needs or services. They may also do another risk assessment, but it's done in the jail to make sure that they're housing people in the right way, that they're providing them with any services that are available. What I found out, and this could I could be mistaken on this, but what I found out is that Douglas County isn't using a risk need assessment tool with the bulk of its jail population. They are assessing the risk to be able to figure out how to classify them while they're in jail, but they're not really considering much about their needs. So when I was hoping originally to get that data from the Douglas County facility, I thought that I would be able to look at their needs and it would be, I'd be able to do that gap analysis that we did looking at the needs of the population against the services that are available in the community. Turns out that that data is pretty tough to get, or at least two prior researchers have not have found that that's not available to them. The Vera Institute, though, does have a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, into the Douglas County facility to get some of the data that they are not willing to share. And so far, that's been a multiple-month process. The Vera Institute has a very large jails program, and they have, I don't want to speak for them, so forgive me if I, if I don't say it right, Vera Institute, but I think your program is amazing. And they have basically tried to create a national database on jails where they're collecting information from a variety of different jails, hundreds of them all around the country, and putting it in to assess different jail populations, make recommendations to the jails so that jails can see themselves against their peer institutions. There's a number of different ways that that data could be used, and the jail can actually use it to better itself, and they're refusing to cooperate with the Vera Institute. I think one of the things that bothers me most about this project and about the effect it could have on your community is exactly what Shannon points out, that your community members are fairly educated, they're very politically engaged, and for some reason, their public and local jail isn't providing them with data. They're actually in a public annual report from 2016 on. So your average everyday citizen can't even go look this information up. It took me months to put together the data that I culled from the internet. And many of the studies that I'm able to pull from come from behind academic paywalls. So your average citizen should be able to, as a voting and taxpaying member, should be able to get this information. What's happening in my jail? How many people are housed there? What is the composition of the inmates that are, who are listed or are living there on any given day or on any given month or year? That information is just 
hidden from sight. And I don't want to say that it's intentional, but it creates a, a nightmare for folks trying to make recommendations to help improve the life in Douglas County when that data isn't available. Thank you. Thank you both. Regarding the report, has it been made available? And where, if so, where can people find it? Or will it be made available? It will definitely be made available. We've submitted our report to Justice Matters, and I think that it is really up to them how they're planning on getting that out publicly. I assume that it will be available through their website, but we can follow up with that and make sure that we make it available to anyone who would like it. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, and I I think if people want to keep track of that, you can follow Justice Matters and go onto their website, justicemattersinkansas.org, just to keep track of when that report will be made available. But And yeah, we'll provide updates to that if we can. With that, Danielle, Shannon, a very important discussion. And I think there's a lot more conversation that can be had and I think will continue to be had. But thank you for coming in and and having this conversation with me today. Thank you very much. This is great. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. And with that, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm